0: Okay, so the Bible text comes from Acts chapter 16. You can turn in your bulletins to page 4. We're going to basically pick up right where we ended last week. The Apostle Paul and his, and his companions are on their missionary journey and they're finally arriving in the city of, of Philippi. Starting in verse 11. So, setting sail from Troas... ...from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who is a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by, by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And she kept doing this for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. tore the garments off them, and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had afflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced, along with his entire household, that he had believed in God. This is the word of God. So, last week we started a series where we're looking at church planting in the book of Acts. Pretty relevant stuff, right? And last week, we started by looking at Paul, how the journey began. And this week, we're looking at Paul planting, finally, in the church of Philippi. Now, the thing you should know about the church in Philippi is that it was one of the strongest, it was one of the most vibrant, healthiest churches in the New Testament. Uh, There's this letter that Paul writes to uh, the church in Corinth. And he actually cites the church in Philippi as this sort of model, as this exemplary church that the Corinthians should imitate. And if you look um, at Paul's letter to the Philippians, uh, if you read through it, you notice that he's not grieved by sort of the sins and the dysfunctions that plague other churches, right? This church in Philippi was vibrant. This church in Philippi was healthy and strong. And so why is that? And we have the explanation, we have the story here of how the church started, how the church was planted, the story that Luke gives us. Now notice that of all the Christians who you know, converted and who believed the gospel and became the church of Philippi, Luke only draws out three stories, three people, right? He draws out the story of Lydia, the story of the slave girl, and the story of the Roman jailer as the foundation, as the beginning of the church. And so Luke is trying to tell us this is how it all started. This is how it all began, okay? And so we're going to take a look at these three people. And the thing that should strike us immediately is how completely different these three people are from each other. I mean, they're, 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 they're so different. Let's look first at Lydia. Look at verse 14. Uh, Luke gives us a kind of a biographical sketch. And he tells us that Lydia was a seller of purple goods. Now, this is basically purple clothing. In the ancient world, you know, it was very difficult to achieve color. Uh, They didn't have, you know, industrial chemical dyes like we do. And so they would have to draw it from the natural world, get, you know, plants and animals, crush it, and sort of dye their clothing. And it was pretty difficult. Only rich people can afford to wear colorful clothing. And by far, the most difficult color to achieve was the color purple. It was ridiculously expensive, so that only the super wealthy could afford to wear purple. And that's why purple was the color of royalty. And so what Luke is telling us is that Lydia, because she's dealing in purple clothing, she was in the high fashion industry. She was this very sophisticated, refined businesswoman. You know, the type of person who would have been very comfortable you know, associating with the cultural and financial elite of that time. And what else does Luke tell us? Luke says that her home base was the city of Thyatira, which is across the ocean in the province of Asia. This makes a lot of sense. Thyatira was um, a center for making purple cloth. And so she had a home there. And then notice Luke tells us that Lydia had a home also in Philippi, Verse 15. And so basically, right, Lydia's going back and forth from Thyatira to Philippi, and she maintained two residences. She was obviously a very wealthy woman. She's a sophisticated businesswoman. She's sort of the head of her own fashion line. You know, the modern equivalent, I want you to sort of imagine Donna Karen. you know, Donatella Versace. Some of you are saying, how do you know these people? (laughs) I don't. I asked Christina. But I want you to imagine just this very sophisticated, refined businesswoman, okay? Next, let's look at the slave girl. Completely opposite end of the spectrum. She's a slave. You became a slave in one of two ways in the ancient world. Either you were a war captive, which means that Roman soldiers would raid your village, kill your parents, drag you back, and sell you into slavery. Or... Her parents were so drop-dead poor, so deeply in debt that they had to sell her into slavery. Either way, she is the poorest of the poor. She's exploited. She's oppressed without any future, without any hope in this life. And the modern equivalent, I want you to sort of imagine this sort of runaway teenager. She's living out on the streets. She's selling herself, prostituting herself to support her crack cocaine habit. The third person, the jailer. Um, The position of a jailer was a very respected civil service job in that time. It was uh, reserved for Roman soldiers who had retired. And it paid a pretty decent wage. So that this jailer was certainly not as poor as the slave girl. But he certainly wasn't as rich as Lydia. So he's somewhere in the middle, right? So I want you to sort of imagine modern equivalent, this kind of middle-class guy. He's a blue-collar job, you know. He's one of those union guys, you know, where, like, after a hard day's work, he goes down to the pub and just, you know, drinks a few beers after work, you know. And so He's a middle-class, solid guy. So, basically, Luke is giving us these portraits of these three completely different people, right? Economically, they're radically different. Lydia, incredibly wealthy. The slave girl, poorest of the poor, and the jailer, he's middle class. Not only are they different economically, they're different ethnically. Lydia is from the city of Thyatira, which is in the province of Asia, in modern-day Turkey. The jailer almost certainly was Roman, from Italy, and the slave girl, we're not certain, let's say she was a uh, war captive, which means that she was sort of in the outer barbarian regions, okay? So here we have three people Completely different economically, completely different ethnically. These are three people who would have never associated with each other, right? Can you imagine these three people in the same room? No way. In fact, they despised each other. They hated each other. And yet, Luke tells us, the gospel brings them together. And they become leaders in the new church. And they form this new community, this new gospel community. Where they love each other, and they're just sharing with each other. And so, how did that happen? How did the gospel reach these three completely different people? And the answer is that the gospel reached each of them in a different way. And so, we're going to take a look at that. So, let's go through each of the stories. First, the story of Lydia. So, Lydia is a very successful businesswoman, but she's empty inside. And we know that because Luke tells us in verse 14 that she is a worshiper of God. Now, that was a very specific term. It was almost a technical label used to describe Gentiles. These are non-Jews who had abandoned their old pagan beliefs. And they were sort of dabbling with Judaism, right? They were attracted to Judaism. But they weren't fully convinced. They didn't go all the way. They didn't convert all the way. And so what does that tell us about Lydia? That tells us that even though she had succeeded in her career, she was incredibly wealthy, she was empty inside. And she had abandoned the pagan beliefs of her ancestors. And she was intrigued, you know. She was attracted to the God of the Old Testament. She was reading the scriptures. And the story, Luke tells us, you know, she's there on the Sabbath, and she's joining with the other Jewish women, you know. And she's, you know, she's there, she's singing the songs, She's reading the scriptures and she's searching for meaning and truth. You know, she's searching for the truth. And then what happens? The Apostle Paul comes along, right? And he says to them, hey, guys, I'm, uh, I'm a Bible teacher. And the women say, hey, please share with us. Please teach us. And we're not told exactly what Paul said, but we can kind of piece it together from the numerous sermons that we have of Paul's in the book of Acts, and we can sort of imagine that Paul said something like this. He said, Lydia, you've been reading the Old Testament. Well, he wouldn't have said that. Lydia, you've been reading the scriptures, and you've been reading about the laws. You've been reading about the temple sacrifices. You've been reading the history of Israel, about kings and prophets and priests, and I am here to tell you That Jesus of Nazareth is the fulfillment of all those things. That he is the king of kings. That he is the ultimate priest. He is the ultimate prophet. And that he is the answer to the question you have been asking all your life. And the passage tells us that in verse 14, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. It just clicked. You know, she got it. God reached into her, opened it so she could understand and to believe. And she, she understood. He was the one she had been searching for all her life. She understood. So how did the gospel come to Lydia? You know, Lydia is like this very sophisticated, very educated woman. And she's reading the scriptures. And, you know, she's kind of, you know, going to church, <laughs> And she hears the gospel, and it just made sense, you know? It was through these kind of reasoned, kind of logical argument presentation that she heard, and it just made sense. And for many of us, that's how we became Christians, right? That's how we believed the gospel. We were reading the Bible, we were sitting there in Bible study, and we heard the gospel, and it just made sense. But that's not the only way. That's not the only way that some someone can become a Christian. Because Luke gives us two more stories. So let's look at the next story. The story of the slave girl. And the slave girl is completely different, right? Can you sit down with this slave girl and sort of have a quiet Bible study with her? Can you reason with her from scriptures? No way. Why not? Because it says in verse 16 that she had a spirit of divination. Now, what Luke meant... And what would have un- been understood as the people of this time is that she had some kind of ability, some kind of power to tell the future. She was a fortune teller. And uh, so she was going around, and uh, she she's following Paul, and she's sort of harassing Paul, you know, just attacking Paul. And she says, in verse seventeen, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim the way of salvation. And right there, immediately, Paul knew that this was demonic possession. How did he know that? Because she referred to God as the Most High God. Right? And this is the way that Satan in Scripture refers to God in a kind of envious way. For example, in the Gospels, uh, Jesus encounters legion. And what does legion say to Jesus? He says, Son of the Most High God. And if some of you are saying, well, if the slave girl was, you know, possessed by Satan, under the control of Satan, why would she tell people these men are preaching salvation, right? Why would she say that? And the reason is, the answer is that... um, She's not saying what we think she's saying. She's using the word soteria. The original word there is soteria. And soteria can mean um, salvation in a very limited sense, the way we would understand it, right? Sin, forgiveness. But it had a very broad meaning in the Greek. It meant something like rescue. It meant health. It meant healing. And so when she was telling people, Paul is preaching soteria. The way that people would have heard her is, Paul is preaching prosperity and health. He's preaching health and wealth. Do you see? So it was a way to sort of distort the message. It was a way to sort of discredit Paul. But here's the interesting thing. Even though she's saying that, she can't help but to recognize the truth. And what is the truth? That Paul is truly preaching soteria to salvation. And what does that tell us? That tells us that even though this little girl, more than any of the other two people, she knew the gospel. She understood what Paul was saying. But because she was possessed by demons, because she was under the control of Satan, she hated the gospel message. And so how did the gospel come to her in her life? Could Paul sit down and reason with her from Scripture? No way. The gospel came to her through a power encounter with Jesus. Through this sort of powerful experience of grace in her life. You see, this little girl was enslaved to the power of Satan, but Paul shows her the greater power of Jesus. Uh, And it starts in verse 18. It says that Paul became greatly annoyed. Now, I think that translation is a little bit misleading, Because we sort of imagine Paul kind of irritated at the girl, peeved, right? But the word is actually that he was greatly distressed. He was upset, not at the girl, but at the demon. And he was deeply concerned for her. And so he goes to the little girl and he says to her, you are just entranced by the beauty and the glory of Satan. But let me show you the glory and the beauty of Jesus Christ. And he says in verse 18, I command you in the name of Jesus to come out of her. And that's very important what he says, the name of Jesus. Because in the ancient when you said the name of, you are referring to the glory, to the power, the authority, the majesty of Jesus. And so it was a power match between Satan and Jesus, right? Who is more glorious? Who is more beautiful? And of course, Jesus prevails, and that very hour, the slave girl was free. She was free. All right, so, you know, a lot of people come to Jesus this way, right? They're in the grip of demonic power. They're addicted to drugs. Uh, They're addicted to something, you know? And you can't reach them by sitting down quietly and reading doing Bible study with them, they need a powerful experience of grace. You know, they need to cry out to God and God will rescue them and show them the glory and the beauty of Jesus. And then that, that's how they believe. All right, so now let's go to the third story, the Roman jailer. So what happens is, after Paul casts out the demon, the owners of, the, the, the girls' owners are really ticked off, right? And so they have Paul and Silas arrested, beaten, and thrown into prison, and that's when Paul and Silas meet the jailer. Now, the jailer, unlike the other two, has no interest in the gospel, right? He's fine. There's no problems in his life. There's no curiosity. Notice that in the story, he never asks Paul any questions. He never initiates a conversation. He doesn't need the gospel. There's no problems in his life. And yet... If you look all the way down to verse 30, the jailer says, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? And so the gospel even reaches the jailer. How did this happen? The answer is it happened through the life uh, example of Paul and Silas. Okay, The life example of Paul and Silas. And they did this principally in verse 25. Look at verse 25. It says that Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. That would have just completely astonished the jailer. Do you know why? Because Paul and Silas had just been tortured. In verse 22, it says that they were beaten repeatedly with wooden rods. This was a form of punishment that the Romans gave to criminals. They would strip you of your clothes. They would tie you up. And they would get these 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 um, wooden heavy strong rods, and they would just wail on your back. You know, they would just tear you apart, and you would be bleeding. Um, sometimes your rib bones would break, and it was such a brutal and savage form of of punishment that by Roman law it was forbidden to be used on c- c- citizens. And so Paul and Silas are beaten with wooden rods. And then what does it say? In verse 24, they were thrown into the inner prison. Now Roman prisons were designed so that it had these layers, right? These levels. And the bottom most level was the dungeon. It was, you know, where you have foul air, it was dirty, it was disgusting. They threw the worst of the worst criminals in there. And so Paul and Silas are thrown into that dungeon. And then it says that Paul and Silas were put into stocks. Now, stocks were there to ensure that prisoners couldn't escape, but it was also a form of torture. And the way it worked is this. They would get the prisoner, and they would stretch their legs. They would split their legs as far as possible, and then they would lock it into place with these wooden beams so that you couldn't move, right? And you would sit there, hour upon hour, And your legs would start to cramp, and they would ache. And it was basically a form of torture. And in the middle of that dungeon, they're in absolute agony and pain. You know, imagine what Paul and Silas are doing, right? And remember, and mind you that, you know, they were probably, from their perspective, they were awaiting execution. They were accused of disturbing the peace. They were thrown into the prison cell where they only kept the worst of the worst. And so, in their minds, the next morning, they were going to be crucified. And in the middle of that agony, in the middle of that torture, they do the most amazing thing that the jailer had ever seen in his entire life. They begin to sing. And they're singing these songs of praise and adoration and thanksgiving to God. And the jailer was just floored. He was amazed. He had never seen anything like this. I mean, here's a peace and a serenity he had never seen. Everything was stripped away from Paul and Silas. I mean, what are the things in our lives that comfort us? Right? Our family, friends, our jobs, money, at least, the very least, a life free from pain. All of these things were stripped away from Paul and Silas. And yet, They were singing and they were adoring God and praising God. And so the jailer must have been wondering, what did these men have that gave them this kind of deep joy? You know, what did these men have? And so this prepared the jailer to hear the gospel. It prepared him. But it wasn't enough. Something else was needed. And that something else happens in uh, verse 26. That was an earthquake. And the earthquake breaks open the doors. It breaks the chains. And the jailer wakes up. And he goes downstairs, you know, because his home was, was situated above the prison. And he sees that the doors have been opened and he assumes the worst. The prisoners have escaped. And he draws his sword and he's about to kill himself. He's about to commit suicide. Why? Well, uh, back then, the consequences of a Roman jailer Uh, allowing his prisoners to escape was pretty severe, he would have definitely been punished, maybe even executed. It was deeply shameful for him to fail in his position in this way. But even that is not enough of an explanation for why he would would kill himself. I mean, why didn't he just man up, you know, and just face the consequences? Why, Why did he want to end his life? And the answer is that this jailer had made the honor and his duty to his career and of being a soldier and jailer the ultimate thing. He had made it his identity, the reason why he is worthwhile and valuable. And when the earthquake came and all of that was taken away, who was he then? He was nobody. And that's why he was willing to take his life. Because... His reason for living was gone. He was nobody without his career. You see, this was a life crisis, right? Everything's going fine, and then a crisis happens, and the thing that he most valued in his life was taken away, and he just wanted to kill himself. You know, some of us are like that, right? Things are going smoothly, and then a crisis, an earthquake. And the thing that we most value, the thing that gives us identity and purpose, maybe it's our family, maybe it's a romantic relationship, maybe it's our jobs, it's taken away, and we just want to kill ourselves. And what does that tell us? It tells us that we have made something other than God our ultimate thing. We've made something else other than God the foundation of our lives. You know, um, I was reading about two months ago, I came across this article. And uh, it was a story about this Korean couple. Uh, I have their name here. Um, their names were Young Ho and soon Kim. And uh, they had killed themselves in an apartment fire. They committed suicide. And what had happened is, uh, they had a salon business. It had failed during the recession. And uh, they were deeply in debt. They were way behind on their rent payment. And the, the bank had repossessed their car. And... They were at the bottom of their lives. You know, they were at the end of their financial rope. And they had a 20-year-old daughter. She was in design school. And they couldn't support her anymore. And so what they decided to do is they doused themselves and the apartment with gasoline. And they lit a match. And they ended their lives. And the police found a suicide note that the father had left for his daughter. And this is what he wrote. It's very short. He said, I love you, my daughter. I'm very sorry to leave you alone. It would have been much better if you had a wealthier father. And then in the note, he left her $40. That was it. That's all he had. And you know, when I read that story, it cut me so much because I know Korean culture. You know, Korean culture, like Asian culture, there's just such a pressure to succeed, you know, financially, academically. And if you drop the ball, if you fail... There's just so much shame, you know? There's just no margin for error. And what had happened to this Korean couple is that they had made their ability to succeed at business, to provide for their daughter, the ultimate thing in their lives. And when that was gone, they committed suicide. And so that's where the jailer was. He had pulled out the knife. Everything in his life was gone, and he was about to kill himself. And what happened? Uh, In verse 28, Paul says, don't kill yourself. We're all still here. And you know, the jailer at that point is just overwhelmed. And the text says literally he was trembling. And he goes and he turns on the lights and he sees that Paul and Silas indeed are still there. They had kept the prisoners from escaping. You know, he had tortured Paul and Silas and they could have escaped, but they didn't. And at that point, he realizes the truth. It's at that point it hits him. He realizes that he had thought all along Paul and Silas were in jail, and he was the one free. He was rich, and they were poor. But it was actually the reverse. That he was the one in prison, and it was Paul and Silas who were free. paul He was the one who was poor, and Paul and Silas was rich. Because what was his... What was his wealth and what was his security? Very fragile. A mere earthquake can just wash it away. And yet, look at Paul and Silas. They're tortured. They're beaten. They're threatened with death. And yet, they had this incredible reservoir of joy and of peace and of serenity. And that's when he realized they have something that he doesn't have. And so he cries out, to Paul and Silas in verse uh, 30. He says, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? Now, he's not necessarily saying, you know, tell me about sin and salvation, right? He doesn't know these things. He's basically saying, tell me about Soteria. How can I be rescued? How can I have what you guys have? And Paul answers in verse 31, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Stop making your honor, your career, Lord and Master and Savior. But make Jesus your Lord. Make Jesus your Savior. And you will be saved. And he did. And he was. So how did the gospel reach the jailer? It wasn't like Lydia through a quiet Bible study. It wasn't even like the slave girl, right, through a powerful experience of grace, being released from some sort of demonic power. But it was through the life example of Paul and Silas. It was through a crisis in his life. And so Luke shows us three very different people, right? They're completely different economically. They're completely different um, ethnically. And they're radically different spiritually, right? Lydia, she reads the Bible. She's searching. Uh, The jailer. No interest in the gospel. He could care less. And then the slave girl, she knows maybe more than the rest of the other two, but yet she's under demonic power. And yet the gospel reaches all of them, you know, and each in a different way. And so what does this tell us? And I want to close with these three sort of closing reflections. What does this story tell us? It tells us three things. Number one, there is no such thing as someone who cannot be reached by the gospel. The gospel is for everyone. It's for all ethnic groups. It's for all, you know, socioeconomic status. It's for all backgrounds. And that means you should never dismiss anyone. You should never say, oh, my coworker, he's too hard. He doesn't care. Maybe... It means that you need to reach him through a Bible study, but maybe it means that you need to reach him through your life example. Or maybe he needs to be shaken down to the core. There's no such thing as someone who cannot be reached by the gospel. Number two, the gospel is the only thing that could have brought these three people together. I mean, can you imagine in this world, these three people congregating together, coming together? as a community, no way. The only thing that could bring these three people together is the gospel. So they could form a new community. So they could form a community of love and fellowship and sharing. Alright, number three. The church is strengthened by diversity. You know, Doesn't this tell us that the Philippian church was so strong and so healthy because at the foundation of the church, at the very beginning, is the story, is the conversion of these three radically different people. And that is a model for us. You know, not all of us are the same. All of us have different interests. All of us have different, you know, backgrounds. Some of us are wealthy, some of us are not. Some of us are well-educated, some of us are not. You know, but... That doesn't mean that we sort of distance ourselves from each other. That doesn't mean that we only relate to people who are like us. You know, the gospel brings us together so that we embrace each other, you know, because of our shared experience of grace. It means that we love each other and share with each other. I almost want to say right here, you know, let's let's just all have like a group hug, you know. I'm not going to do that. But do you guys understand what I'm trying to say? This story shows us The meaning of the new community based not on affinity, not on common interests, not on, you know, same economic background, but on a shared experience of grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are are so impressed and so humbled by this picture you give us of a gospel community that loves each other, that shares with each other, even though they're three completely different people. And Lord, we pray that we would be such a community and that when we plant this church, we would attract people from different ethnic backgrounds, different financial backgrounds, different interests, and that you would be glorified and, you, the, and, the, and the greater world would be so impressed I'm so amazed by that. We pray all this in Christ's name.